Philippians chapter 1, if you would, Philippians chapter 1. I guess I could ask you to pray for me too. I've been fighting a cold all week. And uh, that's not really the worst of it. The worst of it is the general sense of apathy at my own home about this cold. Uh, and believe me, I've tried to tell them how bad it is, and it just doesn't seem anybody's listening. So um, I ask you to, you ladies who have been through labor, you I mean you have an idea of how this feels, and so yeah, hope, hopefully at least get your sympathy and, and prayers. So, all right. Speaking of suffering, Paul's been put in prison for preaching the gospel, and uh, we know that Paul converted some of his guards, uh, but he also converted his chains, as we talked about last week. Uh, he, he, as he writes this letter to the uh, Philippian folks there, he, it overflows with praise and rejoicing, despite the fact that Paul is in prison. So I want to read verses 1 through 5. That's what we went over last week, and I want to just touch on that and review, and then we'll start uh, verse number 6. Paul and Timotheus, uh, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ, Jesus, which are at Philippi and the bishops and de- with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy for your fellowship, in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, pray, Father, you'd be with us tonight as we take a few minutes here and look at these passages that you'd uh, speak to us in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Philippi, we know, is Paul's first European city that he ministered in, and he, he, uh, he had began uh, his chapter here that he's writing here. The letter begins with his introduction and his greeting to them. And look what he says, Grace be unto you and peace from our, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's a need in every church today, isn't it? Grace and peace. Uh, where there is grace, there can be no commencement of hostilities. Where there is peace, there can be no continuation of hostilities. Grace means the war, that war is impossible. Uh, peace means that war is over. And so with these two things that every church needs, uh, we, we understand this because of God's grace that we can enjoy his peace. And so uh, we need that as well as he's wishing that on these folks. And then he goes on, and I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Uh, that is kind of what we were talking about last week, and then it sprung the idea for Wednesday or Sunday night. We gave some examples and testimonies of folks that have affected us in the past because I think it's good that we are thankful for folks that have an input impact on our life. Uh, we are not really any of us self-made Christians. Somewhere along the line, somebody witnessed to us. Somebody, uh, maybe it was parents that raised us right. Uh, somebody taught us the Bible. A Sunday school teacher uh, took time. There's just all kinds of people in our past, so we ought to be grateful in their remembrance. It is a good exercise for us to remember those who have helped us in our Christian journey. And that's what Paul does here. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. No doubt Paul mentions it in hopes that they'll also follow his example. And then moving on, always uh, in every prayer of mine for you all, making request of joy. We talked about this fact that Paul was a prayer warrior. He had a persistent prayer life. Now, as a prisoner, Satan stole some opportunity from him. As he is jailed, he cannot go to new countries with the gospel. Uh, Paul cannot visit the churches that he had founded. He cannot preach from different pulpits across the land there. Uh, He cannot lead teams of young men like he had uh, before uh, training them and installing pastors in different churches. can't do any of that. Uh, But Paul 
could pray. Satan could not keep him from praying. And that's a good reminder for us too because there are times, uh, <laughs> there's times we're snowed in, so to speak, here in South Dakota and all we can do is pray and let's remember that we can pray. Uh, Paul was locked up but he kept looking up and uh, going to the throne of grace day and night. Far more dangerous to Satan, and this, I say this but I really believe this, far more dangerous to Satan than a busy Christian is a praying Christian. There's a lot of busy Christians who probably aren't that much of a threat to Satan. But praying Christians, that is what makes Satan tremble, a Christian on his knees. And then that's kind of where we stopped. But I want to just touch on those last couple of words there uh, when he says, with joy, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Joy is one of the keynotes of this letter. Uh, it's interesting in, in verse uh, or chapter 4, he said, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Uh, peace, contentment, even joy, uh, they're not natural states in our life. They're not natural characteristics. Now, I, I know some people seem to be more happy-go-lucky than other people, but joy and, and uh, contentment, this is something that Paul had to learn. Don't we all have to learn contentment? Contentment's not something that is, well, have you raised children? Were they content all the time by nature? No, they always want more. I, I don't know how many times I've said, how much do I do before it's finally enough? Uh, it's never quite enough. Uh, you do something and they want five minutes more. Uh, you hand something out. I remember one time they had a, this special, at, it was during Super Bowl weekend, and they had a, Special on nuggets at McDonald's, like a super special. You could get a bag of 50. I think I bought 100 of them. And I brought them home, and I'd started dumping boxes. They came in a bunch of boxes, so I, I didn't let them know how many I had. Dump, ah, you know, how kids, they just snark. And uh, I said, I'm gonna, you guys are going to fill up on chicken nuggets. And just one, I had one night. No more. No, no, you're eating another chicken nugget for one time. Uh, I was going to overdo it because there seems like it's never enough. We're not content. We always want more. We always want the next thing. And so we see that with our kids. We also see it with us. Uh, contentment and joy and peace, they don't appear automatically when we get saved. Now, we have the ability for these things with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but they aren't automatically there. Paul said he had learned to be content. And he learned to have joy in his life in preaching as well as prison. He had joy in comfort as well as in crisis. He had joy in prosperity as well as in poverty. So Paul, this is something he learned, something we need to learn as well. Look at verse number 6 now. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the uh, defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all are partakers of my grace. In this book, con constantly Paul points to the source of joy. We tend to look for happiness and in pleasure. Uh, we tend to look for it in things. Uh, reading on here, for God is my record, verse 8, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So 
uh, he's, he's talking here. He is uh, starting to let them know, even though uh, he is uh, in the situation that he is in, uh, he wants them to abound in joy. He wants them to have contentment. He wants them to have love as well. Now, we put things in our calendar that we can look forward to, don't you? seems like we always have something that we're looking forward to, countdowns. My kids have these things on their phone, and uh, it's countdowns, and it counts down till, you know, when the girls were getting married, you know, it was counted down to the hour of the wedding, and so it would be blinking on the front of their phone at all times, uh, you know, two months, three weeks, four days, six hours, 20 seconds, you know, until, until the event comes. We put these things, we look forward to them. Uh, then the event comes and the event goes, often leaving us unfulfilled. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, sometimes it's almost <coughs> sweeter looking ahead to something than it is actually experiencing it. And then we experience it and we are unfulfilled. We're energized by our hobbies once in a while, uh, for a while. And then we set them aside until uh, something new catches our eye. Uh, we plunge ourselves into our work, into our careers, until we have a setback there. Uh, these things are not lasting. None of these things are lasting. Uh, money, things, and even, even our career, even our families, uh, friendships, uh, the, the things that we love to do, they're not lasting things here. Paul's not against pleasure. He's not against passion. Definitely not against a purpose, but he always points us to a person. That's where we're going to find the things that Paul's trying to promote here love joy and peace and contentment that person rises above the ever-changing circumstances in our life now that's how paul was how's paul able to write of his contentment and his joy from where he was locked up uh, he he's he's not a free man but he's a joyful man and he's a praying man he's still gonna because the the, the joy that he has, it's not circumstantial joy. It's, an, it's a non-circumstantial joy that he has. He has joy because he's decided, he's learned he's going to have it. Uh, I have learned with whatsoever state I am to be content. Life will throw us some curveballs, but let Christ be the center of your life. We can be great every day. I've never heard what preacher said a few minutes ago. I love that pride center of pride is I, the center of sin is I, and the center of trust is you. That's a great uh, little statement there. Uh, God desires, I'm going to use that in a few weeks. I hope you guys forget where it came from. But, uh, God desires that our lives uh, and his people's lives uh, will, will be filled with joy. We, we ought to be a people of joy. The word blessed is found 70 times in the book of Psalms. You know what the word blessed means in Psalms? Happy. That's what the word means, happy, literally. In fact, the w first word in the book of Psalms, you know what the first word is? Blessed. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor walketh in the, or stand in the way of sinners, nor walketh, uh, or sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his light is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. You know, a rejoicing Christian is one of God's best advertisements. We ought to be a rejoicing Christian. And yet, how many times do we see the opposite of that? Sour Christians, angry Christians, bitter Christians. We ought to be joyful. There ought to be a smile on our face. And if you're not happy, fake it till you make it. Amen. We ought to be joyful. We always have something to rejoice about. If your name is written down in heaven, it could always be worse. Amen. We have something to be thankful for. Every human being tr wants to be happy. Every human being seeks happiness to some extent. But they seek for it, so many of them, outside or apart from God. 
I read this recently. I thought this is so good. Joy is like your shadow. Your shadow. Run after it and you'll never catch it. But keep your eyes on the sun, S-O-N, and your shadow will follow you. Joy will follow you everywhere you go. We've got to keep our focus on him. That's where Paul's focus was on a person, not on circumstances, not on where he was at. It was on a person. He goes on, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, the Philippians had, uh, they had stood by Paul. Uh, they had supported him. They had prayed for him. They were his partners in the gospel. They had proved their friendship to him with their financial support. They had ministered to him. Sometimes we forget that Paul, he was a man of like passions. We make him such a superhero sometimes. He did need encouragement. He did uh, have down days like all of us do. Paul had temptations. He had problems. He was not made of steel. He was susceptible to temptation. And so uh, he knew what it was like to be attacked by Satan. He knew what it was like to go through discouragement. Uh, the pressures he faced were just as real and the problems just as great, probably much more real and much greater than ours are because of who he was. And so to have a church that ministers to you, that lifts you up in prayer, what a blessing. And he mentions that here. Look at their faithfulness in the gospel here, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. That word translated confidence there, or confident, is to be persuaded. Paul had no trouble persuading himself that the God had begun a good work in the Philippians here. And so he was, uh, he could see proof that they were Christians. And so he knew, by the way, I believe it's because their good works, uh, evidence, uh, were evidence of an inward working of God, uh, in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Our good works result not in salvation, but from salvation. And so when we're saved, we ought to have these, uh, good works in our life to show who we are. And so, uh, Paul had no doubt that God's going to continue this work. Can we remember that about each other? when we frustrate one another sometimes, wonder what you're thinking or you wonder what I'm thinking at that certain point. God's still working on me, still is, uh, making me what I ought to be. And uh, it took him just a week. I don't remember all those words. <laughs> I won't start singing it. But uh, he's, he's working on us. It, we're a work in progress. That's what we should all wear signs like that, work in progress, like the ever-going project here that's never going to be done on 22nd, evidently. Uh, I haven't seen any gain or any movement in months in that job. I don't know if anybody's doing anything, but uh, anyway, it's a work in progress. And so hopefully something's being done, and that's the way we all are. We are a work that God is doing. And so Paul challenges them here uh, with some spiritual goals. Every time that Paul returns to them, he desires for them to have a closer relationship with Christ, accomplishing greater things for Christ's ministry. Uh, that is uh, because uh, the Christian life should be a growing relationship. It should never be stagnant. I've said it often, if we're stagnant, if we're stagnant, we're backsliding. We're not, we gotta be moving forward. Uh, we have to be growing. We ought to always be growing closer to the Lord. Uh, he says he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The Bible is distinguishing here between different days. We're today living in man's day, aren't we? Living in a sinful time. We're living in a society that does not honor God. We're living in a time where the prince and the power of the air is is not uh, the one that we worship. And so the day of Christ is when Jesus Christ will return for us. Uh, receive his church in the rapture. The, the word translated perform here means to finish. 
uh, to bring through to an end. The Holy Spirit never loses sight of the end of his work. His work will not end until we will be just like Jesus. Now, we'll fail along the way, uh, and we often fail along the way, but he'll still continue to do the work in us. We need to allow him to do so. We need to submit ourselves and yield to the Holy Spirit so he can continue to do that work. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that uh, we can be better tomorrow than we are today? Because today is a disappointment sometimes. But we can continue to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you further along in your Christian life than you were a year ago? Five years ago. We ought to be growing all the time. We serve a very consistent God. The world, the period of time that we're living in now, uh, is uh, in, it has a, the idea that truth is relative. Uh, truth changes. There are no absolutes. We do. We know all you got to watch is the news, uh, and you'll see very quickly that what's bad in one political party is just fine in another, and what's acceptable in one is not acceptable in another. I mean, it's, it, we're seeing some real evidence of. Uh, of movable truth and movable, uh, uh, there, there's nothing concrete, you know. And so that's the kind of world we live in here. Uh, relative. There are no absolutes. What's right for you might not be right for me, and what's wrong for you might not be wrong for me. And that's no way that we ought to believe, because Paul warned Timothy of this. Turn, turn if you would, over to 2 Timothy, and, and we'll see where Paul warned Timothy about uh, this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now, doesn't that sound like where we're at today? Uh, people don't want to hear <coughs> the word of God. They want to hear what they want to hear. And too many preachers uh, allow themselves to be led by people who don't really want the truth. They want to feel good, and so they preach feel-good sermons. Uh, of course, the goal of people is to eliminate the, ab the ultimate absolute, which is God. He's the ultimate absolute truth. Uh, Romans 1.25, who changed the truth of God into a lie. There's the, there's the goal right there of the world that we live in. Worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's the desire of our world today is to eliminate uh, God himself. If man can eliminate God, then man can eliminate any accountability he has to that God. And so it's, this allows us to live the way that we want to live and however we please, and we don't have to worry about answering to God. It's a lot easier uh, to stop believing in God than it is to stop sinning. Ever thought about that? So people, instead of stopping sinning, they just stop believing in God or try to talk themselves out of it. I think that's what it is more often than not, is a, a convincing of oneself. I talked to a, just not long ago, I knocked on a door right up, uh, right just north of town here and, and uh, talked to the fellow there, came to the door and said, well, I'm a, I started talking about spiritual things, said, he's, I'm, I'm an atheist. I said, it's interesting, because I don't meet many atheists, I said, believe it or not, I, and I don't. But I said, I have a, I'm curious, whenever I meet an atheist, so if you don't mind me asking, I said, when did you become an atheist? And uh, he said, well, I was about 16, 17, I don't remember exactly what he said. But, 
uh, and he kind of told me what led him to that. And said, so it's interesting, of the few atheists that I've met, everyone has an answer to that question, uh, what, when they became an atheist. Uh, atheists are converts, just like Christians are converts. The atheists, I don't believe you're born that. Well, I, I know that the truth of God is written in the heart, but atheists, all, you ask any atheist you meet, when did you become an atheist? I'll have a story for you. There's a time they were converted to atheism. And uh, so that's always been kind of interesting to me. I think it, it usually is attached to a lot of trouble. It's usually attached to a lot of bitterness. It's usually attached to a lot of anger. And uh, they, they don't want to answer to a God, and they've convinced themselves that God is some kind of monster, or whatever the case might be. But it is much easier to stop believing in God than it is to stop sinning. John 3.19, and this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their days are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Uh, we don't have folks flocking and buy, paying large amounts of money for tickets to come in here and sit in church. And, uh, I mean, hey, I'm, I'm grateful I can come to church every week, and it's free. That's a great thing to be able to enjoy, and, and what a blessing it is. I saw a picture today on social media, actually, today or yesterday, and a preacher had put it up and said, this is, there's a sad truth in this, and the problem with our world. And they had two pictures side by side. One was uh, the, the view from the back of a church, and it had people sparsely... Uh, filtered through the pews there. And then the other was a view of a football stadium with, you know, tens of thousands and thousands of people. Uh, the, the, interest, the, the frustrating thing to me, it too, is that they'll, it can be cold. It can be like snowing. And they'll still flock to that football stadium. It can be uncomfortable. You know, people can be hot and they'll still stay there. People can be rude there and they'll still come. People can ignore them and they'll still come. You let it be church. We, uh, we're, we're not. Why, why is that? Because people love the darkness. They don't like the light. They like the darkness. And so there's not a natural draw there. Frederick Nietzsche said, Truth and value are on a sliding scale with no absolute standard. The philosopher of absolute truth is prejudiced by the proposition that there are opposites like true and false, good and evil. And he, of course, says there's not. The truth is we do not live our lives on a sliding scale. Truth is truth, right is right, wrong is wrong. And so I, I like to put my faith in a God who is consistent. Uh, he will perform it until the day of Christ. He is uh, truth. He is right. Uh, for I am the Lord and I change not, Malachi 3.6. We still believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. Well, politics, morals, religions, ethics, all these things constantly are changing. God remains the same, and uh, we serve a consistent God. That's good to know because he who started a good work in you will continue it, and he's consistent, and uh, that's a good thing to know. Uh, he talks here about the fact, he, he's, a, he's impressed by them, that they're not afraid of his chains, even as it is meet for me to think of this of you all because I have you in my heart, insomuch both in my bonds... Uh, the, the, he had confidence in his friends there. Their support was evidenced in the fact that they were not afraid of his bonds. And I said, what are you talking about there? Well, this was a big deal to throw your support behind somebody who was essentially speaking of a kingdom other than Rome, of a king greater than Caesar. Paul really was 
charged with a sort of treason here, and they were not afraid to continue to support him. Anybody who showed friendship or sympathy for such a prisoner could get arrested themselves, and these people were still faithful behind him. They were not afraid of his chains. They were not afraid of his charge. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. They stood solidly with Paul. Look at their friendship uh, in the gospel here. For God, uh, he says, and I'm, I've left my, uh, left my spot here. <coughs> I can find it. For God, he said, is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Don't we all know what it's like to be separated from those we love? Uh, they, he was separated from them. He longed for the warmth and the welcome of Lydia's home that he stayed at when he was there. He probably longed for the embrace of the Philippian jailer. Can you imagine how grateful that guy was for Paul? How excited he was to see him every time. And so sort of a wave of nostalgia comes over him here. He's greatly I long after you, he says. And I don't think that this is self-pity. I just believe it's a godly appreciation for co-laborers. And I get it. I get it. I feel the same way about co-laborers. I think Brother Sam traveling all over the place has a lot more, I'm sure, than we do is sprinkled in different places and being able to have that bond with those that do gospel work with you. There's a bond with those that work uh, in, in gospel work that there really isn't in anything else. I think of our church family when we're working VBS or we're doing a uh, harvest party, which is coming up soon, or we're even taking a trip to a conference or, or even our deacons meetings. And, and these uh, different working together in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a bond that to me goes further than friendship. Uh, one that attaches us together. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And isn't it? Absolutely. It is for us to do that. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Can I tell you that when there is a one accord type uh, feeling in a church when there's a unity there, there will be gladness and singleness of heart. There's a joy. There's a bond. That's why it's such a an acute pain uh, to us when we lose a part of our body. That's physical or uh, speaking metaphorically as the church. And by the way, that's why Satan works so hard to create that division in churches because if he can do that, he can halt the work uh, because nothing halts the work like division and schisms in a church. And so uh, continuing daily with one accord, how important that is. And so Paul here, uh, he longs after them, he said. He wanted to, Paul asked for a couple of things here, and I'll, I'll close with these two points here. Uh, let's see, and this I pray, verse 9. This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Paul wanted the Philippian people to have a love without limit. Love is the most remarkable thing in the universe. Love defines who God is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. That's who he is. You could not have a greater message than that simple song that we sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a great truth, isn't it? Libraries contain thousands of volumes talking about love. Fact, fiction, a lot of it's trash, but they're trying to talk about love, their version of love. It's the most fascinating subject on earth, and it's the theme of heaven, love. 
And so Paul, he says here, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. They, they would, that they would love without limit. He knew they loved him, but there were so many other people around them that needed to be loved, to have the love of Christ shown to them. You know who needed it is the men who owned the poor demonic girl we talked about last week. They needed the love of Christ. The magistrates that had Paul and Silas beaten, they needed the love of Christ. Uh, they, I'm sure the jailer had a lot of co-workers. Uh, they had friends, neighbors, relatives. They all needed the love of Christ. And we have people around us that need the love of Christ as well. How do we foster this love? I love what C.S. Lewis said. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When we are behaving as if we love someone, you will come to love them. That's interesting. Let me give you an example, a Bible example of that in just a moment. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking them more. Now, I have found this to be true in ministry, and I've seen it over and over. You take two people who are either friends or maybe neutral towards one another. And if person A starts to do things against person B, maybe gossip about them or, or, or do things behind their back to hurt them, then all of a sudden person A will start to hate person B more and more, even though person B hasn't done anything additional. You understand what I'm saying? But our actions, the way that we treat other people is going to promote how we feel about them. I'll give you a Bible example. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Jesus, I like you. <laughs> Essentially, if you look at the original language. He, he said, do you agape me? He says, I phileo you. So yes, I like you. What did Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Why? Because if we serve one, someone, we're going to love them. It's going to build. I think, I think one of the messages Jesus was telling him there is, you're going to, you want to turn your like into love? Serve me. Feed my sheep. Do my work. You know, the more we serve Christ, the more we'll love him. You know, the more you serve your wife or the more you serve your husband, the more you'll love them. It's not in getting served, it's in serving others. And the converse is true when we, when we start to misuse somebody, we will start to develop a resentment in our heart toward them happens all the time and uh, it's an inexplicable theory that's why I thought when I saw that statement by C.S. Lewis uh, it, it really hit home so don't waste time in pettiness let's grow in love by serving uh, one another and that's what Paul was talking about here listen if we all learned we had five minutes left to live like if everybody found out they had five minutes left to live the cell phones would the towers would all crash because of people calling people to let them know they love them why wait until we have five minutes left? Let's love. Let's show Christ's love to people. And let's uh, show it to one another. Paul wanted them to love without limit. Then he wanted them to have a love within limits. Look what he says here. Uh, he says that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now love, there are uh, Bible limitations to what the world will call love. Love is not lust and lust is not love. So the world would confuse those things, nor does love operate outside the law. Love knows its limits. It knows where to draw the line. While we love all men, we do not love all that they do. And I talked about this a little bit last week, and, and I don't need to go into it again, but we can absolutely hate sin and love the sinner. We don't have to accept this sinner's uh, ways to accept 
a sinner. The LBGTQEIEIO movement, they'd love to have us. They, they push that all the time that we're, we're hating them. We're hate mongers because we hate that. Well, we hate the sin. That doesn't mean we hate the person. That doesn't make us hate mongers. And so, uh, we, we can absolutely do that. And so Paul makes it clear here that, uh, we should love in knowledge and in all judgment. By just another example I'll give you here. A parent who loves his child in knowledge and judgment will not allow their child to do whatever they want to do because I love them so much. That's not love with knowledge and judgment. Sometimes love picks up a paddle or a belt. Sometimes love administers a punishment. Sometimes love administers some restrictions. Sometimes love, and this is shocking, I don't want to shock you too much, but sometimes love takes away a phone. That's the worst of all. Remove a limb that don't take away a phone, you know. But sometimes love does those things. Some of you haven't raised teenagers because you weren't sufficiently shocked about that. But I can, I can assure you, if you had a teenager today and you took their phone, it would be a terrible thing. Uh, but love will do that. God's love never violates his holiness. God's love never conflicts with his wisdom. It never ignores his laws. The fact that God is love and longs for all men to be saved does not mean there is no hell. Because God loves in knowledge and in all judgment. See, there's, there's right is still right, wrong is still wrong. And so, yes, God is love. Sin breaks God's heart, but sin also breaks God's laws. And so there has to be uh, holiness demands a payment for sin. And so we understand that. Then uh, we'll pick up next week here when uh, talking about all things that are excellent and talking about excellence and uh, what, what is the enemy of excellence? You know what the enemy of excellence is? A little preview 